Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Productivity is not about doing things unthinkingly. Productivity is about pushing yourself to think more about the things that matter. So for instance, one of the best examples of this is that we know that the people who are most productive tend to spend more time thinking about what their priorities ought to be. Instead of getting into their office and just automatically answering emails and then working on their expenses and then replying to phone calls, instead of going on autopilot, which is what habits help us do, what, what the most productive people do is they sit down and they say, okay, look. I, I know that that's what I did yesterday, but is that the best use of my time today, right? Like what's the biggest priority for today? What's the most important thing? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. 
We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Charles, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I have known about your work for quite some time. Uh, You know, I read your first book, The Power of Habit, and uh, your new book, Super Better Faster, landed in my hands, uh, courtesy of your publicist. And much like your other book, I tore it apart, highlighted it, and uh, shredded it all up with lots of valuable insights. So it's really cool to get to talk to you. But um, I want to start with a question that I haven't started with before that I thought was really interesting. It was inspired by something I heard in the gym this morning. Uh, growing up, did you have a hero and who was that person and what impact did they have on your life and the work that you've ended up doing? Um, that's a good question. And I should mention the name, the name of the second book is Smarter, Faster, Better. Oh, sorry. Smarter, Better. Uh, My bad. (laughs) Smarter, Faster, Better. Yeah. Yes. Um, so did I have a hero growing up? I mean, not really. No. And I, I would say like, I don't really have a hero now. I mean, I, in the, I think that I would actually argue that having a hero is not a great thing because it's um, it's too simplistic yeah. to to say like so and so is my hero. I think I mean there there are certainly people that I admire, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there's people who live with kind of purpose and dedication whose whose examples I draw a huge amount of inspiration from. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I think what's really important is that. I'm very cognizant of the fact that those people are not heroic. Those uh-huh. people are because because if you're heroic, it's not particularly hard to do things, right? Like <laughs> yeah. like if you're a hero, it's like, oh, you wake up and like all the you know, all the obstacles fall away with just a little bit of effort and as long as you're like a Jedi knight and you have a lightsaber, like that's not how life works. So like take take Reverend Martin Luther King, uh-huh. right, who who I think is is deeply deeply admirable. And by the way, was also a deeply flawed person, 
right? He had he had positives and he had negatives. And what's most amazing about him is that he consistently continued working and dedicated himself to a philosophy of nonviolent protest uh-huh. because he knew that that was going to pay off in the end. So is he a hero? I I don't think he is. I think he's something actually much more impressive, mm-hmm. which is that he's a person who found a a purpose and was willing to make the sacrifices and continue working even when it was not clear that that work was going to be successful, right? Similarly, like John Lewis, who's also a, a, a mass major figure of the civil rights movement. John Lewis, it's actually very easy to call him a hero when he's young because when he was in his early 20s, he – he, you know, he crossed the bridge to Selma. He was out of Selma. He was beaten by police officers. He was like this young guy who was able to fit into a, a hero model and role very, very easily. Uh-huh. But like, what has actually been most impressive about John Lewis is that since then, since he has been out of the public eye, he has spent the rest of his life serving in Congress, working every single day on things that oftentimes were not successful. Uh-huh. In order to make the world a better place, like that's not particularly heroic. Going in and like filing some, you know, amendment to a bill. Like nobody ever writes like, you know, in Star Wars Part Seven, Luke Skywalker files, you know, like a uh, the cloture movement. But like that's actually what makes the world change. Mm-hmm. And those people are deeply admirable, not because they're heroes. They're deeply admirable because they found a purpose, and despite setbacks, they worked to succeed. I love that. You know, the, the reason I asked that question is somebody asked it to me in an interview um, when we talked about my own book, and I actually couldn't come up with an answer. I said, no, I don't have a hero. Uh, and I, you know, so I, ha- I happen to agree with, a lot with what you say. I think it's, it's really interesting. Who would you say, I guess, then, if, if not heroes, but um, had a profound influence or a lesson that you learned from a coach or teacher or parent that you think impacted your work later on? I have no idea. I mean, I don't know because I think that – there's so many people who like I picked little pieces of, mm-hmm. but it, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that way. I mean, and I, I actually think it's dangerous to think that way. Like I, I think that I think that people who want aphorisms or they want heroes or they want this one figure who solves everything, it's a way of telling yourself that you can stop thinking, mm. right? Like let, let me give you an example. There's a guy named um, Lee Lorsch. Who was who died um, in 2014? Who was um, is this seminal figure? Again, I'm going to go back to civil rights. He led um, the the fight to desegregate Stuyvesant Town, which is a big a big housing village in New York City, and he was someone who consistently fought for civil rights. Um, and he got fired again and again and again from universities for standing up for civil rights, particularly for integration of African Americans into what had previously been segregated environments. And apparently from everyone I've ever spoken to, Lee Lorsch was like awful to spend time with. He was like just like combative and like obsessed and obsessive and he was like self-aggrandizing and yet he fought his whole life for this really important thing and he got and he he got a lot done. And so I think what's important is that like to recognize that there's times in our own lives where if you are feeling like you are obsessive or you are feeling like you are you're not appreciated that that's okay. Right? There's times when you're fighting for something that's so important that it's okay to 
be that kind of jerk that nobody wants to talk to at the party. But there's also times that it's not okay to be that jerk at the party. Mm -hmm. There's also times when the way that you change the world is you're someone who learns how to communicate with others and to get along and go along. And like that's why there's lots of people whom I admire and there's lots of people whom I look at and I say, I, I want to steal that element of who that person is. I want to steal that element of their character. But but there isn't one person mm -hmm. because that's too much to put on one person. It's too much to put on ourselves. Mm. It has to be this, this mosaic. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, funny enough, I agree with you because, you know, my, my perspective on, on life and creativity has been shaped by more than 600 people of who I've interviewed. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things that really kind of struck me about what you said was you mentioned in both individuals that you talked about that they're deeply flawed. Uh, and it's funny because I heard that same sentiment echoed in this Dan Kennedy seminar when he was talking about high achieving people. And every time he mentioned one of them, he would preface it by saying a deeply flawed individual, something I would even say if they were in the room because they all know it. Uh, based on, on kind of what you've learned about human behavior and psychology and everything that you've studied through your work, why do you think that is? Why is it that this deeply flawed nature and the accomplishment of amazing things seems to be sort of birds of a feather? Well, because I think that oftentimes the things that, that – so, so I think things that are deep flaws are also in some situations great strengths, right? So, so the, the capacity to – I don't know. Take Lee Lorsch, for example, right, again, who like is this kind of almost unknown figure. Um, the fact that he was like willing to fight so long for the integration of African Americans into segregated environments – despite there being no reward to him or his family is actually like why he's impressive. Right. But that same thing in a different setting is a huge disadvantage because it means that you go to a party and you like, just want to make, you know, small talk with him. And all he'll do is talk about how awful segregation is. And you're like, okay, I agree. Segregation is a bad thing. Now let's talk about like whether the chip dip is like tasty or not. <laughs> right. And he keeps on talking about segregation. So I don't, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's that really spectacular people are are deeply flawed and therefore also great. Right. It's that all of us are deeply flawed, right? Yeah. All human beings are deeply flawed. It's that people who do great things, they tend to recognize their flaws and to make peace with them and say, I am flawed in this one way. Let me figure out situations in which that flaw is a huge strength and try and put myself in those situations rather than trying to be an unflawed human being. Uh -huh. Because at the end of the day, I, to be honest, at the end of the day, the only people who are unflawed in this world are super boring people. <laughs> you, can be, you can be unflawed, but that means you're never going to try anything hard. You're never going to take any risks. You're never going to make any mistakes. You're never going to do anything. That's, that's the best recipe to being unflawed, is to just be vanilla. And if you're not, if you're someone who's dedicated to fighting and to believing in something and pushing for that, then by definition, you, there are going to be flaws in your personality. And once you accept that, then the next step is, can I say, these flaws are experiments, uh -huh. and I'm going to learn where these flaws work, and I'm going to learn where they're drawbacks, and I'm going to do everything within my power to try and maximize the strength and minimize the weakness. So the question I guess that raises for me is how do you find the situations in which your flaws become your strengths? You know, and the reason this is fresh in my mind is because somebody asked me recently, what do all the people that I have interviewed uh, have in common? 
And I said, you know, the funny thing is nobody ever asked me what they have in common because they're all so different. That's what I'm trying to find out. But one thing that I did find is almost every one of them took something that on the surface seemed like a major disadvantage, like dyslexia, and it became a disproportionate advantage in their work. So I would push back at that because I don't think that that's true. Like, like there's very little evidence that shows that dyslexia becomes an advantage. What, what we do know is that people who are dyslexic oftentimes learn ways to push themselves uh-huh. and to be persistent. They develop more grit because they've had to show grittiness in order to, to, do, to do everyday activities like reading. And that grit spills over into helping them in other settings. But it's not like the fact that I'm dyslexic causes me to be great. Right. It's that the fact that I'm dyslexic gave me some type of obstacle to overcome and I learned skills in ha- being gritty and in being persistent that I can now apply to other problems. Mm-hmm. Now, now the one the one exception to that I would say is Chuck Close. Not the one exception, but an exception is Chuck Close, right? The artist. Uh-huh. Chuck Close was this amazing um, uh, portraitist. He he did what what most people would refer to as photorealistic portraits, where he would do paintings uh, and drawings of people that looked like photographs. And then he suffered a stroke. And as a result of the stroke, he was bound, confined to a wheelchair, and, and he lost the ability to do very, very fine and precise brushwork. And so Chuck Close decides at that point to come up with a new form of portraiture, which is that he divides the canvas into boxes. And he says, I'm only going to paint uh, you know, two-inch by two-inch box, but these boxes in, in combination, if you step back from them, they will look like a portrait of someone. Now, that's a situation where because and, – and he actually became much more famous mm-hmm. because of the style of portraiture than the work he had done previously that was photorealistic. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a situation where someone has a, di- a, a disability and they use that disability. They adapt to that disability in order to do something new and amazing. But I would not say that it therefore follows that every single person who has a stroke becomes an amazing portraitist, right? Mm-hmm. What's important about that is that Chuck Close – thought very, very deeply about portraiture. And he said, when I don't have one set of tools available to me, I will find another set of tools that will allow me to continue doing portraits. But it's not its not because of his disability that he did amazing work. Mm-hmm. It's that he did amazing work and that his disability shaped that work in another direction. So two questions come from this. Uh, one is, you know, it reminds me of a story I read, and I can't for the life of me remember what book it was in. It was about the guy who did all the glasswork on the uh, ceiling of the Bellagio and how he went blind in one eye. And because of that, it completely changed the way he actually shaped glass and actually became much more interesting as a byproduct. Um, the, the, but the question really is, what separates the person who reacts like that to the situation from the one who doesn't? So that's Dale Chaluli. Um, yeah. What, what separates what separates them? Well, the person I mean, who has that response to a, what you know on the surface seems like a really bad situation. I think actually most people respond that way. To be honest, I mean, there's very few. There's not a lot of people in history who like they were super high performers and then they had one setback mm-hmm. and then like everything fell apart, right? Actually, there's many many more stories of people who. Everything always was going for them in the right direction, and and they assumed that they were talented, and everyone else assumed they were talented. And they had one one setback, and they never recovered because it turns out that they were just lucky instead of talented. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that most people find 
most people find a motivation that drives their work, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, the best thing that can happen to us is that we in, encounter some obstacles that test and make us think about our relationship to that motivation and our relationship to the work and that pushes us to continue working, right? It's, it's not a, it's not a, a coincidence. That, let me put it this way. If you look at most politicians who've gotten to the presidency, they had some, they had some period of deep disappointment earlier in their lives. And it's not that they become president because of that setback. It's that they have the capacity to become president. And when they encounter some type of first, you know, secondary setbacks, they know that they can push through it because they know that they have this genuine, passionate commitment to what the work is as opposed to just the outcome of the work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like the difference between someone who says, I love thinking about making art. I love experimenting with different ways of holding my brush or blowing glass or writing stories. I am, I am so fascinated by this question of how to tell stories that are compelling to other people versus someone who says, I would love to write a best-selling book or I would love to make a great painting or I would love to have a famous piece of sculpture. If you're, if you're focused on the end product, if that's all that you're thinking about, if that's all that interests you, then it's very, very hard to make it through those those setbacks. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're fascinated by the activity itself, if you're fascinated by the process and the journey, then the setbacks they really aren't that big a deal. Like this, I mean, it's a big deal. It's super disappointing. But the setback becomes basically like something that teaches you like a new possibility, a new path forward. Like that didn't work, so now I'll try this. And the truth of the matter is, you don't know, regardless of what any of us tell us. We just don't know whether we actually are in love with the process until we experience the setbacks. I mean, we might tell ourselves, like, I, I love making art. I believe that I, I like, love the art-making process. I don't care if people like my art or hate my art. But until you've been through it, it's very hard to really, like, test that thesis. Yeah. And then once you have, if you find that, like, you're going into work and the work kind of sucks and nobody appreciates you, but you still like going in every day. You discover this thing, which is like, I actually just like really like doing the work. I mean, this happened to me recently where like I became an editor about two years ago at the times and I really, and like it was very hard and we had setbacks and I really did not like being an editor. I like, I loved the success. Like I loved when we were successful but when we had a setback, I was just like, ah, oh, this job just sucks. Whereas when I'm writing stories and I'm reporting, like even when there's a setback, it's like, oh, like that didn't work. But like, here's another way to try. Yeah. I just love reporting and I love writing. And being honest with yourself and learning that about yourself, that's, that's when you learn what to do where you're going to be successful. Yeah, I, I to me setbacks are our biggest tests. I think that you know sort of stand between us and the next level of significance. At least in my experience in my life, something always good seems to come from a setback, even though it never seems like it in the moment, and it's hard to believe that something will. Yeah, but also I think that like again, it's really important not to like fall into these like these like platitudes. Like something sure. always good comes from a setback. You know what? Sometimes nothing good comes from a setback. Yeah. If nothing good comes from a setback, you should learn from that that maybe you should do something else. Uh Or you should just say, like, look, you know what? 
setbacks are part of life. Nothing good is going to come of this, but I got to get three setbacks out of the out of the way in the first five years of my life, and this is one of them. Like, it's important just to it's important to think deeply and to be honest with ourselves, and and say like, sometimes bad things happen, and that's okay. If you still like what you're doing in the midst of the bad thing, you're doing the right thing. And if you don't like what you're doing, it's okay to say, you know what? Maybe I should go do something else. Hmm. So um, I want to start talking about the book, but I want to ask you one other question. I read in your bio that you spent one terrifying day as a bike messenger. Uh, Yeah. And I had to ask about that. And I'm curious what you learned about people and human behavior from that one day. Almost nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I was. It was only one day. It was like so. I was a bike messenger in San Francisco, and um, and I thought that I would be like a super badass. Like I was like, what's the craziest thing I could do? I had just gotten into business school, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm going to become a, a bike messenger. And it was so hard, and I just and it was like so miserably hard that what I learned is I should not be a bike messenger. <laughs> like I should just go to business school and like do something else. that's actually like more, more accustomed to my skills. Huh. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's get into, you know, why you're really here, which is to talk about smarter, better, faster. Um, but right. You know, smarter, faster, better, smarter, faster, better. I don't know why I keep confusing that. Cause it's funny. Cause it's sitting right on my desk. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, what what was it in particular that sparked your interest in this area of human behavior, habits and productivity? Well, so I think for me it was this basic question where like I felt like I felt like I was personally struggling with this. So so I had I had just written the power of habit, um, and, or, and had just come out, and um, and it was doing fairly well. Like like I was sort of surprised by how many people were interested in it and were buying it. And that was that was great. I felt really really lucky. And I was also working at the, that same year. I was working on this series for the New York Times called The I Economy that went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. And so so professionally, I was having this like great year that was very satisfying. Um, and I would come home each night and I would like talk to my wife and we have we have two kids and they were both young at that really young at that point and. And I would say to her, say to my wife, like, you know, like, if this is what success feels like, like, just sign me back up for failure because this is terrible. Because, like, I would get home every night and all I would want to do is kind of, like, have dinner with my kids and read them a story. And I would have, like, a hundred emails that I needed to deal with and, like, all this stuff that, like, I had meant to do during the day and I hadn't gotten to that was really, really important and needed to get done. And so I'd stay up till midnight or one o'clock in the morning dealing with emails and all these tasks and then I'd fall asleep and then I'd wake up the next morning and all I had was more stuff to deal with and it just it didn't make any sense to me because I felt like there were these other people that I would look at who who seemed much more successful than me and seemed much less stressed out than I did and I couldn't figure out why like why were they able to get more important things done than I was if I was so smart and so I started reaching out to researchers. And, and at first I thought that there was like some killer app, right? There, or there was like some rule, like uh, like delegate everything or, you know, like never like write more than one sentence in an email or, you know, there's all these like life hacks out there that it takes like 30 seconds to read, right? And it's supposed mm-hmm. to be life changing. And what all the researchers said is they said, first of all, some people are much, much more productive than others. That is absolutely Right. But that the reason why they are more productive is not because they found some life hack. It's because they've trained themselves to think differently. 
They've trained themselves to think about certain things in, in fundamentally different ways. Like for instance, how they self-motivate. They've learned a method for self-motivation or how to be creative on demand. They know how to push themselves to think in a certain way that makes them more creative faster. Or how to run a meeting with teammates. They know how to build a team that gels much, much better and much, much more quickly. And that at the core of it is thinking differently, not necessarily acting differently. That the acting, it follows once you begin thinking differently, but, but the key is to think the right way. And so once I had learned that, I decided to spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly how I should be thinking in order to be more productive. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the most interesting thing to me is that this actually came after the power of habit, despite everything that you know about habits, because I can tell you, you know, the things that you wrote about in the book have had a profound influence on my life. Like I cultivated the habit of writing a thousand words a day, and I can definitely say that some of the things that I learned from the power of habit played a role in that. Uh, as well as many of my other daily habits. So it's, it's interesting that this came after, like the, the, you know, you considered yourself less productive after a book about habits, uh, which I think is, is, you know, a funny sort of paradox. Um, but, well, but, but I think there is, I think there's a lesson there, which yeah. is that in many ways, the power of habit and smarter, faster, better, they're actually very, they're opposite books because the thing about habit formation is, when you make a behavior into a habit, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make it something automatic, right? Something you don't have to think about. Mm -hmm. So instead of like struggling and, you know, beating up on yourself to go write a thousand words, you just do it automatically. Or instead of, you know, having to haul yourself out of bed and convince yourself to go exercising, you just do it unthinkingly. And, and that's great. Like once you've decided what habits you want to courage, you have a lot of power because of these tools from the power of habit about how to shape those, build those habits, the right habits in your life. But productivity is very different. Productivity is not about doing things unthinkingly. Productivity is about pushing yourself to think more about the things that matter. So for instance, one of the best examples of this is that we know that the people who are most productive tend to spend more time thinking about what their priorities ought to be. Instead of getting into their office and just automatically answering emails and then working on their expenses and then replying to phone calls, instead of going on autopilot, which is what habits help us do, what, what the most productive people do is they sit down and they say, okay, look, I, I know that that's what I did yesterday, but is that the best use of my time today, right? Like what's the biggest priority for today? What's the most important thing? Because in today's economy, in workplaces, you can be busy all the time. You could be busy all day long and not get anything important done, right? Back when I was having this crisis, I was constantly busy, but I wasn't doing the important tasks. I wasn't figuring out how to think about my life in a way that prioritizes what's most meaningful and most important. And so in many ways, Smarter, Faster, Better is about how you train yourself to think just half an inch more deeply about the choices you're making, about taking control over your own life, because that's where real productivity comes from. And what's interesting about that is that if I was to tell you to think more, that's actually exactly the wrong way to think more, because essentially you'll forget. You'll forget to think more. You'll just fall into your habits. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is you have to build what are known as contemplative routines, these practices that look like habits, that kind of are habits. But the point of the habit is to force you to think. And oftentimes it's active, like you get into a habit of, you know, arguing with your friends about like whether you're making the right choice. You get into a habit of writing your biggest goal at the top of your page and then 
and then asking yourself, is that really the most important thing that I should be doing today? But those habits, rather than letting you stop thinking, the point of them is to push you to think more because that's where productivity comes from. Hmm. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. Okay. So, so many questions. Um, you know, I know you divided the book into, you know, a several different areas. So I was wondering if we could do a, sort of a high level overview of each one. Um, so can we start with motivation, focus and goals and kind of, you know, how you've looked at them and, uh, then I'll, I'll have some follow-up questions in each of those areas as well. Sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, so motivation. So, so it, the, the story, um, I, I sort of explain what we know about the, the neurology of motivation by talking about how the, the story of how the the U.S. Marine Corps changed boot camp, right? And and basically, what we've learned is that what people people we can ge- we can we can generate activity in that part of our brain where where um, motivation resides by doing two things. First of all, by looking for choices that make us feel like we're in control. That that actually increases motivation. One of my favorite examples of this is actually a study that was done of nursing homes. Um, they went into nursing homes and they were trying to figure out why some people move into nursing homes and their health declines almost immediately and they end up dying. And other people move into nursing homes and they they seem to thrive. Because if you think about it, a nursing home is actually like a situation where there's all these resources around you. So everyone should do better in a nursing home. Everyone's health should improve. But there's all these people, who, old, older people who move into nursing homes and like as soon as they get there, they basically like go off a cliff. And so what they found is that the people who tended to thrive in nursing homes, they sought out ways to prove to themselves that they were in control of their own lives. And researchers actually refer to these people as subversives. Because what they'll do is they'll do things like break the rules on purpose just to prove that they are in control of whether they break the rules or not. One of my favorite examples is that um, there was this one nursing home where every resident would get a, a meal tray with like a the preset meal on it, right? They had no choice about what to eat. And there was this group that would sit down and as soon as they got their meal tray, they would trade items with each other. And there's this one guy who loved chocolate cake. Chocolate cake was his favorite dessert. And every night he would get chocolate cake from the dining hall on his tray and he would always trade his chocolate cake with someone else. And the researchers asked him like, why are you trading your chocolate cake? You love chocolate cake. And he, he told them, I would rather eat a meal of my own design than the most deli- than have the most delicious thing forced on me. And that's actually and those people as a rule were much more motivated. They were more highly motivated to exercise, to follow their doctor's orders, to interact with other residents, to maintain their exercise routines, to eat more healthily. They had no problem generating motivation inside a nursing home. And it was because they looked for ways to prove to themselves that they were in control of their own life. They found choices. They they took chores and they turned them into choices. And that reminds us that we're in control and it, and it activates that area of our neurology where motivation resides. Now the other, go ahead. 
It's really interesting because as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about, you know, my waking up every morning and writing a thousand words. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I do this because it's a choice and it's one part of my life that I have control over. And I can't help but wonder if that's the reason I'm motivated to do it because I control it. I think absolutely. I think absolutely. I mean, the fact that like, you know, if if I came and I told you that you couldn't leave the house until you had written a thousand words, my guess is that you would feel much less motivated to write that thousand words, right? And we've all been in this situation where like there's like some dumb task at work that uh-huh. like we just have to do. We have to file our expenses. We have to, you know, grade students' papers. And it's like torture, right? And yet and yet there's tasks that are equally boring that all of us do without much problem that we're really motivated to get done because we feel like we're choosing to do them. It's something that we want to do. But this also ties into the other thing that we know about motivation, which is that for motivation to be sustainable, it has to somehow connect to our deepest aspirations or our deepest goals or values. Mm. And we have to remind ourselves of how it connects. We have to basically ask ourselves, why am I doing this? So one of my favorite examples is I was interviewing this one oncologist and, and he, he's a professor, a, a researcher, and he said that he hates grading students' papers. It's like the most boring thing on the face of the planet. So when he sits down to grade students' papers, he get, has this mantra he repeats to himself, which is that he says, okay, why am I grading the students' papers? I'm grading the students' papers because that allows the university to collect tuition dollars. And when the university collects tuition dollars, it allows them to pay for my research. And if they pay for my research, I can go and I can try and find the cure for cancer. And if I, try, if I find the cure for cancer, I'm going to save millions of lives. So by grading these students' papers, I am helping to save millions of lives. Now, that's ridiculous, right? Like, that's crazy. (laughs) But what's equally crazy is that an MD, PhD has to go through this mantra just to sit down and grade students' papers. Mm -hmm. But that's the point, is that oftentimes we forget why we're doing things, particularly stupid little dumb things that that it's easy to be frustrated by. And if we remind ourselves, I'm doing this for an important reason, it it helps us generate the motivation to actually get started. So one of the, the question came from this, um, mainly because my earlier part of my career, I was written off very much as, as largely unmotivated. And as somebody who writes books and as an editor for a living, you know that to write a book, you can't do it without motivation. Uh, and so it made me wonder, it, you know, now that you've explained that to me, it makes me wonder if maybe there was no sense of deeper purpose or it wasn't connected to any sort of why am I doing this? And maybe that's why I wasn't motivated. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if I think I think if we have a job and we don't know why we're doing it, it's very hard to get motivated because every job has like has aspects that are just boring, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's why they pay us for it is because there's things that are hard and unpleasant. And and unless we know why we're doing it, unless we know how it links up to like our goals and our values, it's hard it's hard to get to get started. Mm-hmm. It feels like a it feels like a burden. Yeah. So let's talk about this idea of focus. I mean, focus in particular is very interesting to me, uh, especially because I hadn't heard it from your perspective before. And, you know, living in a world that is full of distractions, I'm curious uh, how you how you manage this idea of focus, like how you look at it from your lens. So the so the way that I think about focus is I think of it in terms of how how do we build mental models in order to to tell ourselves a story that lets our brain figure out what to focus on and what to ignore. Right? And in the book, we tell this through the, through the lens of the um, 
particularly this one this one flight, flight 447, which is the Air France flight that crashed into the sea. And then this other story that I love, the story of Qantas Flight 32, which is one of the, the worst mid-air mechanical disasters in modern aviation, and the pilots landed the plane completely safely. And the reason they were able to land that plane you know, when you're when you're in a cockpit and there's an emergency going on, there's like a thousand alarms going off all around you. And the thing that's important for a pilot is a pilot has to figure out what alarms do I pay attention to and which ones do I ignore. And it's really overwhelming, right? It it and the way that we know that people do that well, that they figure out what to focus on and what they can safely ignore, is that they're in a habit of telling themselves a story about what's occurring. Or, or psychologists refer to this as building mental models. That, that for instance, when a firefighter, the best firefighters, when they walk into a b- burning building, they tend to start telling themselves a story immediately about the room that they're in. They say things like, okay, I'm in this burning room and I expect to see flames in the right-hand corner and there's a set of stairs in the left-hand corner and I expect the, the flames on the left-hand corner, I expect them to be burning even higher than all the other flames in the room because staircases burn faster. And as a result, when they walk into that room, they know exactly where to look, right? They know what to pay attention to. But most importantly, when something in, when, when the flames coming off of that staircase, when they're much smaller than they expected, and when it contradicts the story that's inside their head, something in their brain says, okay, pay attention to that staircase. There is something wrong with that staircase. Don't go walk on it. The same thing happens when you're in a cockpit, is that if you've told yourself a story about how to think about this plane, how you're going to react to this emergency, if that story is running through your head, then you know exactly what to pay attention to. Your brain in split seconds can decide, pay attention to this alarm, that alarm doesn't matter quite as much. Or think about when you're walking into your office in the morning, or you're going into some important meeting, right? It's not, we don't tend to think of those things as like the cockpit of an airplane during an emergency, but, the, but very similarly, there's all this information. There's all this stimuli. You walk into the office in the morning and your phone is buzzing in your pocket because you've got 10 new text messages and there's 100 emails waiting for you and some colleague comes up and they ask if you can step into this 10 o'clock meeting and, and things are kind of overwhelming. And so what we know is that the people who react best in those situations, the people who are able to focus on what matters most and avoid all the distractions – they're the people who have visualized a little bit how they expect their day to unfold. Mm-hmm. Instead of simply saying like, oh, I have a meeting from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, they think to themselves like, I have a meeting from 10 to 11 o'clock, and I'll bet you Pete's going to start the meeting with that stupid idea that he has, and then Susie is going to like object because she always objects to what Pete says, and then I can come in with my idea, and I'm going to look really smart by comparison. It doesn't take much to visualize your day with a little bit more specificity. It doesn't take much to build a mental model. It just takes getting into the habit of kind of telling yourself a story about what's occurring as it occurs or trying to imagine what a conversation is going to be like or what your day is going to be like because that gives your brain some framework, some mental model to figure out what deserves attention and what can be safely ignored for right now. Where do people screw this up? I mean, people screw this up because they they simply don't do it, right? They just become reactive. Mm-hmm. So, so like in 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 Air France Flight Four Four Seven, the uh, a flight that basically had nothing wrong with it that crashed into the sea. What happened was that as people were looking at as an emergency started unfolding, as as an, an air light went on in the cockpit, the pilots had no no story they were telling themselves, and so they overreacted. To that alarm, 
because because they had no context to put it into. They had no awareness, what's known in in aviation as situational awareness. They weren't thinking about how this one alarm fits into the to the bigger picture, the bigger story they're telling themselves about this plane. It's called falling into a cognitive tunnel. It we've all we've all experienced this. It's like when you're driving down the freeway and um, you're going the speed limit and you see a cop car and your first instinct is to immediately hit the brakes. That's because we're unprepared for that stimulus. We overreact to that piece of stimulus because we don't have a story in our head of, oh, there's probably some cop cars on this road. You know, if I see one, it's not a big deal because I'm already going the speed limit. It catches us off, off guard. Mm-hmm. So when people make a mistake, it's because they stop thinking. They just allow themselves to go into this reactive mindset where they wait for a stimulus and then they overreact to it because they're not really telling themselves a story about how they expect the immediate future to unfold. Okay. Um, let's talk about goals briefly. Um, you know, I've had a number of people here, performance coaches, performance psychologists, you name it. And so it's been really interesting to hear all the different perspectives that I've, I've gotten on this. Um, the question that really came about for me after reading the section on goals was, you know, how do you find the balance between something that's ambitious and something that's morale crushing? And then what do you think it is that causes people to set goals and not accomplish them? So I think the difference between, so, so here's what we know about goals is that almost all of the research that's been done on goal setting says that it's really, really important to have two kinds of goals. And, and the best way to talk about this is to-do lists, right? Because to-do lists in many ways are like the, the, the device most of us use to like think about our goals, at least, you know, daily goals. Most of us write a to-do list the same way. We, we use it as an external memory aid. So what we'll do is we'll just write down a list of all the things that we need to get done. And, and in fact, it, many of us, we know from studies, there's this instinct to, to feel a sense of accomplishment or sense of productivity that's so strong that about 15% of people on their to-do list, they'll actually write down things at the top of the list that they've already done because it feels so good when you sit down at your desk to cross those off right away, right? You, like you feel like you've gotten something done today. And the problem with just writing down like a list of tasks is that our brain's instinct is to look for the easiest task. It's to, to prioritize things by what will give us a sense of accomplishment and productivity rather than focusing on what's most important. So the question becomes, how do we use a to-do list not as like a memory aid, but how do we use it as a, as a prioritization tool, something that pushes us to think about what is the most important task for right now or for today or for this week? Mm-hmm. What the research says is that the best way to do this is to write at the top of your to-do list what's known as a stretch goal, right? Your most important goal for today, for this week, for this month, for this year, write down the most important thing that you want to get done. And, and think big, right? Like, like, like come up with like in a best case scenario this week, I am going to get this one thing done and it is going to be awesome. Now, the reason why that's so useful is because every, if you have it at the top of your list, if in fact, when I write my to-do list, I actually write it in capital letters at the top of the page. Then every time you look at your to-do list, you're being reminded of what your most important goal is. And so if I just spent the last 40 minutes you know, re- answering emails, and I look at my to-do list, and it says at the top of the page, write the memo you've been putting off for three weeks, then I know I should stop doing emails. I'm just doing that to avoid writing the memo, and I should get to work on that memo. 
But the other thing that's hard, as you pointed out, is that when you have a big stretch goal, it can kind of seem intimidating, right? Like, like you probably the reason I've been avoiding writing that memo over the last three weeks is because it's it's a hard memo to write. I don't really know where to start. I keep on like shying away from it. And so what researchers say is that underneath that smart goal or underneath that stretch goal, that big ambition, you should have some system that helps you break that into little pieces that tells you exactly where to start. And one of the most popular systems of this is known as smart goals, where for your big stretch goal, you just write down specifically what you want to get done. That's the S in smart. And how are you going to measure success? Is it going to be like the memo is done or I have an outline? Is it achievable? Have I chosen a goal that I can actually get done? Is it realistic? That's the R. And to make it realistic, do I need to like turn off my email or close my door? Do I need to set aside three hours? And then T, what's the timeline? How long is it going to take? S-M-A-R-T. It, it only takes about 45 seconds to kind of like take a big goal and broke it, break it into these five components. But once you do, it basically has told you, like, here's your plan for getting, for getting started on this goal. And that's, that's kind of the secret is that you want to combine this big ambition, a stretch goal, with some method for breaking it into small pieces so that you know where to start and that it seems approachable. Okay, so I want to ask about one other section, and then I want to do the last section as sort of a combination. The next one is about absorbing data. You know, we live in a world where we are consuming, you know, just copious amounts of information. I can tell you from the fact that I read two books a week, I produce two podcasts, um, write multiple articles on Medium, and then, of course, that in, that's that's my creation. But on top of that, there's consumption. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this idea of absorbing data. And, and more importantly, from the data, how do you parse the signal from the noise in a world in which we have so much noise? Well, I think what we know about about learning from data, and this is really about learning from anything, mm-hmm. is that it's really, really important to to involve what's known as disfluency, which is this insight that paradoxically, sometimes the best way to learn from large amounts of data is to slow down how quickly it's passing us by and to do something with it. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is that there was a big study that was done of um, of students who take notes by typing on their laptops and students who take notes by handwriting, you know, just longhand in classes. And, and the researchers actually took these two students and they exposed them to the same lecture and they asked half of them to take notes on their laptop and half of them to take notes by hand. And what they found is that the students who take notes by laptop they actually collected much more data because you can type faster than you can write. And so they would oftentimes um, type what the professor was saying almost verbatim. They, they collected about three times as many ideas on the laptop as the handwriting students. In other words, they collected much more data. Mm-hmm. But then they asked all the students to come back two weeks later and they gave them a test as to what the lecture had been about. And the students who had taken notes by hand, they like blew everyone else away they scored much, much higher than the students who had taken notes on their laptop. And the reason why is because the students who had taken notes by hand, they had had to work harder to collect that information. So think about like when you've taken notes in class by hand. Oftentimes, because you can't write as quickly as your professor is speaking, you oftentimes have to like kind of process what the professor is saying and then put it in your own words on the piece of paper that you're writing on. So as a result, you're actually transforming that information. You're, you're, you're doing something to that data. And that makes it much, much easier to, to remember. And it also makes it much, much easier to learn from. 
Similarly, what we found is that if you're reading a great book or you're listening to a great podcast and you want to really like learn the ideas, what you should do is you should turn to someone else and you should explain the idea that you just learned. Not because you're trying to educate your friend. But because the act of restating that lesson in your own words mm-hmm. actually encodes it into your brain much, much more deeply. It, you learn the idea by, by restating it in your own words, by doing something with the information. And the same thing is true of anyone who's, who's using data, is that if you really want to learn from data, if you want to change information into knowledge, you, you need to do something with it. So, like, for instance, in my life, I, um, I bought this scale that connects wirelessly to my computer. And so every morning I would weigh myself and it would send my weight to my computer. And, like, this app would draw this, like, pretty graph for me, like, of how my weight had changed from day to day. And every Sunday I would, like, look at the graph and I'd be like, oh, that's what happened to my weight. It, and it had no impact on my behavior whatsoever. So, so when I was doing the reporting for this chapter about disfluency, um, one of the researchers I was talking to was like, okay, now look, this is what you should do. On Sundays, sit down and recreate that graph by hand, right? It's a seemingly pointless activity because the graph is already on my computer screen and it looks very pretty. But he said, just sit down with a piece of paper and recreate that graph by hand, draw it by hand. And I started doing that. And, and what happened was that, like, I would draw, like, you know, it's my weight went up two pounds on Wednesday and it went down on Thursday. And I'd be like, wow, so what happened on Wednesday? And I'd remember, oh, Wednesday was the day I was supposed to go running, but I didn't go for a jog because I woke up late. And then I ate, like, a hamburger at lunch because I was kind of tired and didn't have enough willpower to have a salad. And, like, that's how I started learning how to make connections between the data and my lifestyle. That's how, that's how I learned to process this information and make it into knowledge. And the lesson there is that you need to do something with the information or with the data in order to learn from it. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of numbers that slide by your eyeballs. It's interesting because uh, I, I still do a good amount of my writing by hand. I use a Moleskine notebook, and it makes me think about something Ryan Holiday told me. He uses something called a note card system that he had learned from Robert Greene to catalog everything he learns from books, and he does it all on actual physical note cards. And he specifically said that he doesn't use Evernote when somebody had said you could just use Evernote to do the same thing, and he actually mentioned that there was great value to doing it on note cards, and now I think you've given me an explanation for why. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really important. Like, like I mean, I mean, we all know this, right? Like, if you really want to learn something, interact with the material. Like, if you want to... If you want to, if you want to remember a new word you've learned, use it in a sentence. Explain an idea to the person sitting next to you. It, it, it everything about like what's going on in the age of big data is about making data easier to handle, and that's great in many ways, right? Like for many research scientists, the ability to have larger data sets allows us to to get more precise in our predictions and our analytics, but. But simply having access to more data doesn't mean you learn something from it unless you've trained yourself to interact with that data and actually do something with it to allow it to teach you. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so uh, I want to wrap by talking about these last three, three things. And the reason I asked the questions in the order that I did is I feel like the earlier parts were all really focused on the individual, whereas these, I think, really focus, in my mind, at least the way I kind of created the mental model in my head, was focused on involving other people. And that was innovation, managing teams, and uh, decision-making. Uh, can you give us sort of an overview of those concepts? Um, and then we'll just start and we'll start wrapping things up. 
uh, sure. I mean, it, yeah, that, that's kind of yeah, that seems a little bit too big, actually. Fair <laughs> so, enough. So let me just say this. I mean, I think that like when it's individuals or when it's organizations, mm-hmm. there's this basic insight, which is that the more we push ourselves to think more deeply about the choices that we're making, the more successful and productive we tend to become, right? And we know this from research studies. And so then the question becomes, how do we push ourselves to think? And we know in different types of settings, right, whether it has to do with teams or innovation or data or self-motivation, that there are that there are specific techniques that allow us to think in deeper methods. We, if we just sit there and we say, like, think deeply right now, like, think more right now, mm-hmm. that tends to be very ineffective. Because, because just ordering ourselves to think more deeply is not, is not the, a great way to think more deeply. We all know that. What we need is we need techniques or we need processes that push ourselves to think in very specific ways. So that we know that when we're talking about putting a team together, we need something that fo- that teaches us to focus on how those team members interact with each other. Because the easiest way of putting a team together is to say, well, I need one introvert and one extrovert, or I need people who are friends with each other, or I need people who you know have skills that complement each other. That's the easiest way to put a team together. But we know from study after study that that's not actually why a team succeeds or fails. Why a team succeeds or fails is because of how those people interact with each other, what the culture is like on that team, something called psychological safety. And so once we have like a, a book or a, a set of tools or a set of perspectives or a certain way of thinking that pushes us to ask certain questions of ourselves and others, it helps us think the right way. And that's where real productivity comes from. Hmm. Well, this has just been uh, fantastic. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That makes something uh, that makes somebody unmistakable? Yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, being unmistakable means that like, um, that they don't make mistakes, right? Well, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Uh, you know, I mean, I wrote a book called unmistakable, so I defined unmistakable as something so distinctive that nobody else could have done it, but you, um, it's immediately recognized as something that you created or made. I have no, I, I mean, I, I think that the key would be actually to be open to making mistakes. I mean, I think that that most people shy away from making mistakes, or at least being honest with themselves about making mistakes. And that that the, one of the best things you can do is you can look at every decision you make as an experiment, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it's an experiment that that hopefully is in part a mistake. Like mo- if an experiment performs exactly like you expect it to, then that experiment is a failure because the whole point of running experiments is to is to learn something new. So if everything turns out exactly as you expect, then that's not a good experiment. That's a that's a, a failed experiment. And so if you make if you if you make choices that allow for the ability to make mistakes to that encourages actually making mistakes then I think you'll probably learn faster than everyone else. And when you really need that important insight, you'll be better prepared to succeed. Awesome. Well, this has just been uh, fantastic, and you've packed it with uh, a lot of really just valuable insights. Uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your insights and your story with our listeners. 
Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. So there, there was that sort of like, yes, this is scary. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move again and I'm going to start a business. It never felt... I don't know. I just never questioned... I never questioned myself if one way didn't work. Like the first few months of my freelancing thing, I was taking super low paying jobs and not really loving the work. So I just quit them all and started again. And the second time it really stuck. So that, I think just the idea that if it doesn't work the first time, there's just another way to go about it. That's the big mindset thing that's sort of stuck with me my whole life. Marion Chambari joins us to talk about the power of making your work more personal. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.